looking to sound like you know what's going on in the world? Pop culture, social strategy, comedy, and other funny stuff? Well, join the club and settle in for the Jeff Dwoskin Show. It's not the podcast we deserve, but the podcast we all need with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. All right, Christopher. Thank you so much for that amazing introduction. You get the show going each and every week, and this week was no exception. Welcome, everybody, to episode 65 of Live from Detroit, the Jeff Dewaskin Show. As always, I am your host, Jeff Dewaskin. Great to have you back for another incredible episode. This week, I'm talking with Ed Begley Jr. That's right, actor and environmental activist, Ed Begley Jr. That's right, star of St. Elsewhere, Best in Show, Arrested Development, and so much more. That's right, Ed Begley Jr. is here, and that conversation is coming up in just a few minutes. So here's the cool thing. In preparation for my conversation with Ed Begley Jr., I reached out to John Iman. Wait a minute, Jeff. Do you mean John Iman from episode 34 of Live from Detroit, the Jeff Tawaskin Show? Yes, I do. That John Iman, child star of the 50s and 60s, who happened to also be bestest friends with, you guessed it, Ed Begley Jr. So I reached out to John. I said, John, give me some scoop on Ed. He did, and I asked Ed some cool stuff that John gave me the 411 on, so you can look forward to that in just a few minutes when the interview comes up. Also, check out my interview with John Iman, episode 34. He started in a Twilight Zone episode. He was in the first Leave it to Beaver. Amazing guy. Great interview. Love that episode. So check that out as well. I also hope you checked out last week's episode with Carol Baskin. She was amazing to talk to. She's been doing so many great things with her big cat rescue, saving tigers from extinction. You gotta check it out if you haven't already. Everyone knows Carol Baskin from Tiger King. They really painted her as the villain of that show. She is not a villain. She is a hero when it comes to saving tigers and big cat rescue. So definitely check out episode 64 with Carol Baskin, episode 34 with John Iman. We're here at episode 65 with Ed Begley Jr. What's special about episode 65 is that I have my power back on, so I'm excited about that. Michigan, we had some wind and thunderstorms. Perhaps you read about it in the news, but our power was out for days. I had to record episode 64 in the dark, in my basement, on my laptop, while the battery slowly ticked away 100%, 90%, 80%, 70%. So I had to quickly get it out so I didn't miss my midnight deadline on Monday. I didn't want to disappoint anyone, wanted to get everything out. So there you go. That's what you get from Jeff Dewaskin. He'll even record the podcast in the dark without power so that you don't miss a week. That's my commitment to you. I thank you so much. And thank you also to everyone who follows, likes, supports, tells all your friends about the podcast live from Detroit, the Jeff Dewaskin Show. Go to jeffisfunny.com. You can click on a button that says follow the Jeff Dewaskin Show. There's links to all the podcast apps, CastBox, Podcaster, Apple, Google, iHeart, Amazon, everywhere. We're everywhere. Oh, my God. How did that happen? I got to go call my family and let them know how famous I am. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. So anyway, so go do that. You can sign up for my mailing list at jeffisfunny.com. There's a link for that. Do that. I send out an email every week. You don't want to miss out. The people you work with are probably always talking about it. And you're like, what's going on? And they're like, hey, if you know, you know. From the website, you can also buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash Jeff Show if you so wish. I'll sip the coffee. Mention your name on the show. That's pretty cool. Oh, you know what else is pretty cool? Go to my YouTube channel. Search the Jeff Dewaskin can show on YouTube. Follow me there every Wednesday live. We do a live show, 9.30 p.m. Eastern time called Crossing the Streams. What? More Jeff Dewaskin? Yes, more. Crossing the Streams is awesome. It shows you should be streaming and watching on any of the platforms. We bring in guests. So we have over 33 episodes. Last week, we talked about Woodstock 99, McCartney 321. It was kind of a music episode. And we talked about a bunch of other stuff as well. So tons and tons of suggestions for you. People are always asking, what should I be watching? Well, now there's a show for that. So check that out. So much to do. I know I give you too much homework every week, but the most important thing you could do is just tell all your friends to listen to the podcast. That's the most important thing you can do in the world. (laughs) Thank you very much. And now it's time for the social media tip. 
All right, this is one of my favorite segments of the show where I get to share a little bit of my social media knowledge with you, a little 411 stuff I picked up on the street. Today, I want to talk specifically about playing hashtag games with hashtag Roundup. What, Jeff? That sounds familiar. Well, it should. I read tweets from hashtag Roundup games at the end of every one of my podcast episodes. And I want you to be a superstar in a future episode. Go to the Google Play Store. Go to iTunes, the App Store. Get the hashtag Roundup app. It's totally free. I made this app and I give it away for free because I want you all to play. Once you have the app, it has a full schedule of all the daily games. But even if you don't look at the schedule, you get a push notification every time a new hashtag game starts. And you know all the fun ones because I read them every week. They're pun games, movie games. Anyway, basically all that useless knowledge you've accumulated your whole life, now's the time to apply them to hashtag games on Twitter. And here's the cool thing about using hashtags on Twitter, especially when you play with hashtag Roundup because we're all playing the hashtag at the same time. People search for other hashtags because they love retweeting. That's a thing. People love to retweet. And when they're searching on the hashtag, they don't have to be following you. So it's a great way to get noticed and for you to notice other people. So in the end, it's a great way to grow your follower base. The more you grow your follower base, the more you grow your influence on Twitter. How cool is that? I know. And you're having fun along the way. Tons of hashtag Roundup games end up in news articles, BuzzFeed, etc. And they and they pulled their favorite hashtags. And of course, say it with me, one day you could show up on a future episode of Live from Detroit, the Jeff Dewaskin Show. So get the hashtag Roundup app, play hashtag games on Twitter, have a great time, and grow your Twitter following. Trust me, you'll love it. And that's the social media tip. I do want to take a second to thank everyone who supports the sponsors week after week after week. Can't thank you enough. When you support the sponsors, you're supporting live from Detroit, the Jeff DeWaskin Show. And that's how we keep the lights on. This week's sponsor, Miss Rosie's Innovative Recycling Center and Kitty Art Emporium. Turning yesterday's trash into today's art. Hey, mister, just because you're done wiping doesn't mean you're done with that empty toilet paper roll. Time to head over to Miss Rosie's. Miss Rosie's has kids on staff that won't just see an empty toilet paper roll. They'll see a tube ready to be turned into a bird feeder. Ooh. A castle. Ah. A windsock. Tired of all those empty tin cans lying around the house? Well, in a blink of an eye, Miss Rosie's team of arts and crafts experts can add some heart to that tin by turning it into a wind chime. Ooh! A pencil holder. Ah! A state-of-the-art cutlery organizer. Ooh, oh my god. Never reach for a spoon and grab a knife by accident again. Miss Rosie's team of experts don't just see old CDs. They see coasters, candle holders, driveway deflectors, and guitar picks. Oh my goodness. Miss Rosie's team of elementary-aged kids are trained to turn your trash into art. When you're done, Miss Rosie is ready to begin. Well, that sounds amazing. Can't wait to fill my house with all these amazing recycled art projects from Ms. Rosie's. If you can't wait to get one yourself, just head on over to eBay. They're exclusively on eBay. Just search Miss Rosie's and you'll see all the amazing recycled artwork ready for you to buy. I got to say, I think it's time that I shared my conversation that I had with Ed Begley Jr. with you, actor environmental activist if you don't know how to go green if you've thought about going green this is the episode for you you're gonna love it enjoy ladies and gentlemen i'm honored to introduce to you final taps legendary first drummer john stumpy peeps john welcome to the show good to be here on the show with you good to be here i'm kidding of course loved insane elsewhere best in show the in-laws arrested development countless other tv shows and movies most recently reoccurring on young sheldon Honored to be joined by television and film icon Ed Begley Jr. Woo. Thank you, pal. But I love being associated with Spinal Tap. I die in a bizarre gardening accident, I, th- I seem to remember. And uh, I sure have a good time with Chris Guest doing all the movies we've done since, too. Yeah, that must be amazing just being part of that whole ecosystem with Chris. Amazing and best in show and for your consideration. I recently watched Mascots. I didn't even know there was one. I must have missed it. Hilarious character that you played. Thank you. A.J. Blomquist. That's right. Yeah, that was a Netflix movie, I, I think, the mascots one. So we did a TV series for a while, too, that was on HBO called Family Tree. And uh, 
anything that Chris is doing, I want to be part of. I just had lunch with him yesterday. He's a dear friend and great, great guy. That's amazing. The uh, You did have one of the funniest lines in Mascot, though, where you're explaining Danny the donkey. For the two people who don't know, <laughs> Danny you. the donkey was the first anatomically correct costume. Hilarious. Too funny. That's right. Chris comes up with these great things. Him and Jim Pittock used to be Eugene Levy and Chris who would write the 25-page treatment. They did the heavy lifting for these movies. And then we'd come in, you know, with Fred Willard and all the other wonderful people, Eugene Levy, Catherine O'Hara, Jane Lynch. You know, we'd just have a party and do improv. But the hard work was done by Eugene and Chris. And now for years, it's been Jim Pittock and Chris. And they came up with the whole mascots idea that I would be this character and so-and-so would be the other character. And from there, we just had fun and like a jazz you know, group, you know, you just, you have chord charts and you just hit the right chords at the right time. And then you have a finished product. It's amazing. So it's a 25 word treatment. You're based. So when you're sitting there going mano y mano with Jane Lynch in that opening scene. So it's just, you kind of just basically have a direction, start here, get to here. And then you guys just roll. Yeah. But when you're working with a great Jane Lynch or Michael Higgins with these Fred Willard, you know, Eugene Levery, Catherine O'Hara, you got to be on your toes because they, they're very quick, very smart, very funny people. And my challenge is usually just not to just to keep a straight face and not to blow sky high because they're so damn funny. How do you? Because I mean, like in the best show when they're sitting there trying to find, no, that's the good card. <laughs> like the whole I know. I, it was the hardest job I've ever had in my life to just be straight faced and be like, you know, Easter Island, try to be a statue and not crack. It, it was rough going. The most fun rough going, I can imagine. There exactly. <laughs> Do not have to burst into laughter. We should all be uh, that lucky. They come out with some every few years. Is there anything coming on now? Will Eugene Levy, you think, come back now that I'm assuming he was busy with Shit's Creek for quite a while? Yeah, we've all been in a break for a while. And uh, But I started working last July. On, I did a Hallmark movie in Nevada, in Reno. And then I did a Young Sheldon, a this and that, and Mr. Mayor. Eventually things middle of last year. And then certainly by late last year, started to open up a lot. And only because they had a very good procedure with COVID testing before you got on set. Days before you came on set, you'd get a series of COVID tests, temperature, swabs, hand sanitizer, distancing, everything. We had no outbreaks, so that was very good. A few people tested positive, but they were sent home, and that was the end of the day shooting. And, uh, you know, we got through it. And now we're, as you know, in California, relaxing the mask rules and lots of other things. And so we've done a good job, I think, and we or to be rewarded for it. And now things are really picking up with work. You seem to be one of the most busy people in the industry. You're everywhere. You're always everywhere. I never thought I'd still be working at 71 years of age, soon to be 72. I thought I'd be retired by now, but I don't necessarily want to retire. I thought they would just retire me despite what I had in mind. Somehow I'm still working and uh, I'm loving every minute of it. I don't think they'll let you retire. You're like one of those actors where you come on stage, you know, as an audience member, you're like, you know, you're in good hands. You know, like everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be entertaining. That's how I always think of you when you come on any character you're doing. You know, when I was a young man, I would see people like Tom Poston and these guys are a part of the, you know, the uh, Steve Allen crowd and these actors of that day and Harvey Corman and this one. I thought, well, I'd like to do that. And then I realized Again, not to compare myself to these huge talents, but I went, wait, oh my God, I am, I'm doing something like that. I'm like a Tom Poston kind of guy in 2021. This is a great gig. I never thought I'd get something like this. And here it is. I'm that guy who's a character actor and still working, you know, well into his seventies. You're going to keep going. So, which is pretty awesome. Just to circle back real quick. So you were Spinal Tap's drummer, a mutual friend of ours, John Iman, who also had on the show amazing person. Amazing guy. I love him. Amazing guy. So he told me you actually play drums. So the, you guys had a little garage band together. We did. And he told me that you guys played with at a party, Sonny and Cher. This is a true story. There was a place in the Valley where I grew up and where I still live, the San Fernando Valley in LA. There was a place called Don Drysdale's Dugout. Don Drysdale was a pitcher for the Dodgers. And he had a place with a bat handle instead of a regular door handle. It was a bat that you opened and pulled on this Louisville slug or something to open the door called Don Drysdale's Dugout. And it was a New Year's Eve gig, 1968 into 1969, that transition year. And uh, we were playing there and in walks Sonny and Cher. They had apparently been invited by Don Drysdale to come spend part of the New Year's there. And we did. We rang in the New Year with Sonny and Cher. And Deacon Jones was there. 
a sports figure, Deacon Jones, and he wound up playing knock on wood. I relinquished my drum kit to Deacon Jones and he played, but that was a, a big thing for us to be uh, playing with Sonny and Cher on New Year's Eve. 1969. It was big stuff. This guy, Kerry Zirin, is a guy who organized the group. Kerry Zirin, me, John Iman, Grant Webster. Maybe that was it. That might have been it. They'd give us cash money at the end of the gig and we split it up. It's pretty good to be paid to do something you love. And to spontaneously be able to do it with Sonny and Cher. That, that would have been during, it was, that was during their heyday, right? I mean, that was... It was. It was that. Yeah, it was wonderful. And I've seen her many times since. She and I have remained friends. And so when I see her, I always remind her that she's Seems to be amused by the story. So very nice lady. <laughs> That's awesome. John also told me, which I did not realize, that you were a stand-up comic for quite a while. I did stand-up for years. I I started doing it on my own when I was very young. My dad got me a space at this uh, evening called the Hollywood Comedy Club on Highland at the American Legion Hall, all these old comedians. And literally one guy was in the silent film troupe called the Keystone Cops. People like that were there. Milton Berle would come in and all these big time comics of the day would come in and people from very early Hollywood would come in. But I got a spot there, like a five minute spot or something to get up as a young comedian. And I didn't exactly bomb, but I definitely didn't wow them because I had the worst corniest jokes. I didn't write very many jokes at all. I got them from a gag file subscription. and They're pretty seedy jokes. I went up there and, and did it. I had my time on stage. So then when I partnered with a man by the name of Michael Richards. I went to college with Michael and did plays with him. He played Kramer and Seinfeld, many other things. And so we had a comedy duo. And we did that for a while. Never got any bookings, really, but we um, we worked out the Troubadour and the Ice House in many places, comedy store the week that they opened. And then he went in the military. So I branched off on my own after he got drafted. And I uh, did stand up around the country and really enjoyed it. And then got too busy to do it because my acting career in TV and films started to pick up and I I dropped stand-up in about 1976. But I did from really 1971 to through 76 or so, I did stand-up quite regularly. And he mentioned that you and Michael Richards would do some kind of pirate improv together. That's right. Made from his amazing brain. It was just this thing with lots of pantomime swords and all sorts of stuff produced from scabbards. He would just do this thing. And as a aspiring young comedian, I would just try to keep up with him. He was the funniest guy at Valley College where we went to college. Everybody was doing Michael Richards impressions, including me. So to be on stage with him was quite a gift. He was very, very talented back then. It was a talent that he was born with, but he nurtured it. He watched old Charlie Chaplin movies and Buster Keaton movies and all the great silent film stars and many other comedy legends. He watched that and honed his craft uh, over years. And so when he came back to uh, clubs like the Improv and the Comedy Store in the uh, late 70s, it was. He moved from San Diego to back to L.A. He did very well instantly. He had a big manager, Charlie Joffe, and he got this show called Fridays that he did with Larry David and others, and he uh, did very well from that point forward. John was also kind enough to share a story that you were once arrested for impersonating a cop. True story. The misfortune of being arrested for impersonating an officer when you're doing a a stand-up routine. It was my bad, though. I walked out in front of the troubadour. I was hoping to get a, like, just a little guest spot to go on stage. I'd been on stage there before, and I had a police uniform that was part of my outfit. I was walking from the troubadour to Tana's, this Italian restaurant next door, and these cops came up, and they thought I was a real cop, so they then, I think, felt embarrassed because I had a full LAPD uniform on, but I was not at all a cop. They took me into uh, West Hollywood, tank there, the West Hollywood Sheriff's Station. This before was a city of uh, West Hollywood. The Sheriff's Department ran that LA incorporated area there called the Sunset Strip and on Santa Monica Boulevard. So I was arrested and put in jail for the weekend because I didn't know anybody that had $500 for the bail. That was a lot of money back then. They didn't have ATMs back in 1972. And so uh, I just sat in jail for the weekend then got out my own recognizance and I got off all the charges. I even made them give me my uniform back. But it wasn't like I was going door to door saying, I'm a cop, give me your drugs, your money. I was just walking down the street as a, right, right. an actor. Little mis, uh, misunderstanding. I get yeah. it. I get it. With the Christopher Guest stuff, that's all improv. Do you have, with the stand-up background, do you just draw on the stand-up background? Or do you, did you ever train in improv? I trained in improv for a bit. I was in a group, Ed Greenberg, this friend of mine who was an improv actor, and we were part of a, a loop group together that does ADR and movies that, adds voices to movies and TV shows. And he 
came up with a group that included Betty Thomas, if you know who that is from Hill mm-hmm. Street Blues and a fine director for many years. Shelley Long was in the group. Joe Spano from Hill Street Blues, like Betty. Great, great people were in it. And we had an improv group. Our intention was to get it honed to the point where we would you know, go on at the comedy store, at the Troubadour somewhere. I don't know why we never did. We trained and trained and trained and rehearsed and rehearsed. And we never got to that point where Ed and others felt comfortable to go on stage. I was the other side of that spectrum. I would just go on stage with Michael with no idea even what we were going to do. We were totally insane. We'd go on stage. We didn't have any set material. We'd just go, we'll go wherever the, you know, the room takes us. And it wasn't like we'd ask for like a suggestion. Now, where are we? Laundromat. Okay, we're in a laundromat. Who are we? You're a podiatrist and you're a flight trainer. Okay, go. You know, that's another improv game you can do. We probably would have done fine with it. We didn't even do that. We just kind of went on stage and started doing stuff. It was like the arrogance. I don't know who we thought we were. We hadn't read Viola Spolin's book about improv. We didn't know any of the rules about, you know, you always agree. I'm the king of Spain. No, you're not. You know, you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to, yes, you, I'm the, you are the king of Spain, but sir, you're about to be beheaded. You know, whatever you want to say, but you never disagree. We didn't know any of that. We kind of went on stage and got a lot of laughs on occasion, but we were not consistent because we didn't adhere to the, what are probably very good rules about improv. And finally, Avery Schreiber, a wonderful improv actor from Second City called Avery Schreiber from a comedy duo called Burns and Schreiber. He came to the Troubadour and saw us and he went, I have a feeling you guys think you invented this, but actually you didn't. People have been doing this for what? You know, we didn't quite get it. We uh, we thought we were inventing improv, uh, something. I don't know what we thought. We just didn't think of it. We just went on stage without a plan and, and occasionally did well and occasionally did not. Oh, that's funny. You invented improv like Al Gore invented the internet. <laughs> <laughs> we thought we had invented it. But you were having a good time and you were making it. That's that's pretty cool. That's pretty awesome. Well, let me, let me ask you a question. I asked Jennifer Candy this. Her father was John Candy. What was it like having a famous father in the sense that you kind of share a famous father with the world? And the answer is, you know, compared to what? It's what we knew, what Jennifer knew growing up what I knew. I thought it was very normal to have a guy who had a bunch of little pictures sitting in his office that were pre-autographed that he'd hand to people, or a guy that carried an Oscar around in the trunk of his car. I just thought that was kind of normal because I didn't know anything else. And it wasn't until years later that I really realized how lucky I was and how much, what a foot in the door I got being Ed Begley's son. I somehow miraculously got an agent when I was like 16 or 17. I never thought, well, wait a minute, how did that happen? How did I get an agent? I was like a student at Valley College along with Michael Richards and others. How come they didn't get an agent and I did? I I don't think I really thought it through to realize because I was Ed Begley's son. For a while, I even rebelled against it. I wanted to change my name for a while. And I was talked out of that, thank God, because I didn't want to like ride in my father's coattails. I, I wanted to be a different person. The truth was everything about it is positive. That is to say, one they're going to remember your name, whether you're Liza Minnelli, Rob Reiner, Ed Begley Jr., you know, whoever, they're going to remember your name, number one. And number two, of equal importance, they're going to have something that's going to make the job interview called a reading or whatever you want to call it, make the job interview more comfortable. And that is they knew of or knew my dad. I work with your dad on a Philco Playhouse and we did a we did a Twilight Zone together. And I tell you, I love your old man and such and such. So let's start at top, top of page eight, Eddie, good luck. You know, they kind of were inclined to like, root for their friend's son or something. That was the good news. I finally figured that out too late after my dad had passed away. So I don't think I ever got to show him how grateful I was by what he gave me. And he never really talked to me directly about acting, but I would help him learn his lines. I would cue him and read all the other parts in the script that he was trying to learn for Wagon Train or Gunsmoke, whatever he was doing. I'd read the other lines. And in so doing, by doing him a favor doing that, I suppose, he was doing me an even bigger favor because I was getting to act with Ed Begley, you know, with this fine actor from 12 Angry Men and many other things, this award-winning actor. So it was a big gift. Most people suffer from that syndrome, though. They don't really appreciate their parents fully till years later. Some people are wise enough to see it as it's happening, but I didn't really get it till years later, how much, what many gifts my dad did give me. It's hard to recognize things always in the moment and sometimes upon reflection. I, t- I totally get that. That's great that, you know, he helped you out in that way. And, and it's great that you were able to make those connections. I did read that he was, he did a Rod Serling one. And I was like, because Rod Serling, I love. And I read that your dad was in one of those. And like that was pretty cool. So he won an Academy Award 
Do you have it? Do you get to, do you have, do you have this Academy Award? Hold on a second. Can you see it there? Yeah. Oh, that's nice. That is nice. That's his, that's my father's award. He left it to me and I'm very grateful for that too. Another thing to be filled with gratitude about that he cared enough to give it to me. Very, very sweet and thoughtful of him because he knew I wanted to do what he did. He knew I wanted to be an actor. Indeed, I had done a few acting jobs while he was alive. I got an interview for a show called My Three Sons, which was a hit show at the time. So this is 1967. I went in and read for Fred DeCordova, who was the producer of The Tonight Show, all those Johnny Carson years. He was a producer of The Tonight Show. And I read for him and got the part and did the job. And I had a paper route. So I left my makeup on and did my paper route that day with makeup on, hoping that somebody would look at me and go, hey, wait a minute. Is that makeup? Are you an actor? I literally was hoping to get recognized, even though the show hadn't aired yet. I just shot it a few hours earlier. But then think about that again. I didn't really think it through. I don't I don't remember thinking through thinking, how did I get an interview for a hit show, My Three Sons? I got it because I'm Ed Begley's son. I didn't get it because I saw a tape of mine or what have you. People didn't have tapes back then. Uh, they saw me because it was a favor to my dad and then possibly even a favor to my dad that they hired me. But then eventually I kind of learned on the job and got better. I didn't, I wasn't so bad that I got fired. You know, I would do the job well enough to get another job and another, another and build from there and kind of learned as I went along and finally got to the point I, I learned something. Well, that, that's good. You know, everyone needs an end. Everyone needs an end. So yep. you earned it, right? I mean, like they could see you just because it's you know, your dad's name, but then you had the talent to kind of back it up and they're like, thank you. I got lucky. You you kind of made the rounds, Adam 12, Mannix, the love boat. How was it being on the love boat? It was great. It was uh, the year that I did that. I think it was 1983. I'd just been on St. Elsewhere for one year at that point. And I remember that Bruce Paltrow was less than thrilled with me. The producer of St. Elsewhere was less than thrilled because I was a regular on that show. But I was offered and took the job of being a guest star on a competing network show called Love Boat. It wasn't like it was on opposite St. Elsewhere. I would have been sued or fired over that. You can't compete with yourself. Back in those days, you really couldn't do that. Bruce was even upset. I understood why, because our competition every week was a show called Hotel. That was a big ABC and Aaron Spelling show, I believe. And so I've kind of gone into enemy territory and I'm supporting the opposition by doing that show. And there were people who were less than thrilled by me, but I didn't get fired or sued, thank God. And uh, I was just careful not to do anything like that again to fuel the fires of who we were competing with. That makes sense. Because I know Love Boat, they definitely had people on as guest stars to help them fuel shows that were on that network. That was part of that. Exactly. But I remember being thrilled working with Mary Crosby. She was a star. She played a mermaid in that sequence I did that there was a movie called, it was with Daryl Hannah called Splash. Splash. Thank you. Why could I not think of Splash? That had just come out like a year before. Love Boat was trying to capitalize on that story. So she was a mermaid, Mary Crosby. And I was a, a human and fell in love with her. And uh, I somehow threw my back out in the wardrobe fitting by putting my pants on too quickly. The first time my back had ever gone out. I was a man, 32, 33 years of age, never had a bad back in my life. So then I had to pick up Mary Crosby with a bad back. And fortunately, uh, I didn't fall down or what have you heard either of us, but I was, and she was, was not now, nor was she then a heavy woman, rather petite, but still I was in excruciating pain. And I should see some of those episodes to see if any of it reads in the close-up. As a guy with a bad back, I always joke, if I drop a pen, I buy a new pen. So it doesn't, it doesn't I don't bend over, I don't do nothing. I'm, so I, I get it. It's once you hurt yourself, it's 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 hard. So St. Elsewhere, that was your first regular series that you did, right? So how did how did that come about? I was literally thinking of not quitting the business, but quitting the LA business. We lived in a house, my wife and I, in this is 1982. And we had been there for a few years, about three years. I, at that point in 1982, been an actor for 15 years, for a decade and a half. And I was still struggling to get a guest star here, a guest three-line part there, whatever I could get, loop group kind of work, you know, anything I could get to put food on the table. And I was, I talked to my, my wife and said, here's what I think we should do. We should sell our house in LA and move to Atlanta. And I'll try to be a big fish in a small pond in the town of Atlanta try to get a job as a local weatherman or what talk show host on the radio and build up to the point where I had a, you know, an on camera kind of a hosting show, like a local talk show in Atlanta. Cause I know all these friends who are actors coming to town to shoot in Georgia, musicians are coming to town to do it. Cause I'd done, I'd been an opening act for, you know, like Can't Heat and Log of the Messina and John Sebastian and Poco and all these seventies groups or what have you. And so I thought, 
I'll have a talk show in Atlanta and that's the plan. Let's sell the house in LA and we'll move to Atlanta. Ring the phone. One second, honey. Hello. Oh, it's my agent. What's going on? What, what do you mean? What I don't understand the words you're saying. What is a saint elsewhere? What does that mean, saint elsewhere? When do they want me to come in? Great. I got an interview, honey. So I went in, I read for St. Elsewhere, read for the part of Dr. Peter White. Turns out they gave to a wonderful actor named Terrence Knox. I did not get the part, but they said, because they kind of liked me. Mark Tinker kind of liked me. I think John Nation liked me. I think Bruce Paltrow at that point tolerated me. So I read for another part called Ehrlich that had one line as Ehrlich. They're going to combine it with this character called Stanton that had two lines. I had three lines in the pilot, very small part. But I said yes to it, of course, to be in this wonderful show. And somehow, thing with Bill Daniels, they wrote a scene in which I was this tall mutton Jeff and he's shorter, kind of numb nuts, kind of a guy, Ehrlich, with the chief of surgery, Bill Daniels, being impatient with me. And that really clicked. So they started writing for that character pretty soon. They said, we want you to be a regular. Pretty soon, the character of Dr. Peter White gets killed off. Terrence Knox's character was no more. And I was in every episode in the show and one of the main characters in the show. So I didn't get what I wanted, but I got something better than what I wanted. You know, I got this wonderful part that lasted for six wonderful years. So that was a real gift, that job. It seems like it's a lesson. I've heard other people tell stories where they go in and it's a small role, but then they click with who's playing. Like Scott Valentine, was, I interviewed, he was Nick on Family Ties, it's supposed to be one episode. And right. then they're like, oh, we love you. We, you've got an amazing smile. And then he just became a fixture. You know, yep. it's like you hear like that story like over and over again. It's yeah, something clicks and they like it and then they start to write for it. How did you feel about the snow globe ending? It was out there. It was pretty bold. It was it gets points for being bold, but it wasn't a crowd pleaser. I'll tell you that, that the whole six years was all in the mind of an artistic kid as he looked into a snow globe. But I, I thought be bold for God's sake. And they did. And, you know, they didn't play it safe which they did in the whole run of the show. They did crazy things for six entire years. So they're to be applauded for the craftsmanship of the show. It was a very good show, a very funny, very moving show, and also quite daring in many ways for its time. Like I didn't have to look up. It's been a while since the show went off the air. I didn't have to look up how it ended. You know, it's like one of those shows that you, that because of the bold way they ended, it's you remember the show. Right. You know, like Newhart, you know, when he wakes up and he's right. in the old show and all that kind of stuff. It seems to be hard to end shows. It is. But look at Mayor of Easttown. They ended Mayor of Easttown. I won't do any spoiler alert here, but how if you saw Mayor of Easttown, that ended in a very surprising manner for me and many other people. So you, you could do that was only one season though, but it was a big shocker. It was like you didn't see it coming. That's kind of nice. And they certainly didn't see a snow globe coming. So I guess it I'm giving praise to that general notion now that I think of it. I haven't seen Mayor of Easttown yet. I did what just watch. I know Gene Smart's in that. I just watched Hacks with her, which was excellent. And, and I got to uh, see that. She's so wonderful. She's such a great actress. Did you see her in Fargo? She's always great. Amazing in Fargo. Amazing in Mayor of Easttown. She's just wonderful in everything. I'm a big Gene Smart fan. I've worked with her on a movie called Protocol. And uh, what a great actress. What a great lady she is. You worked with, uh, well, there was a million great actors on there, but you worked with Denzel Washington. Was he Denzel? Well, I'm trying to remember. Was he Denzel yet or was he just becoming Denzel Washington? He was always a great actor. The talent was there from the get-go. He was clearly a wonderful actor. He hadn't done a lot at that point. He'd done a lot of wonderful stage. He was in ACT and he was uh, excelled there. Very well respected there for his fine work there. Came on to St. Elsewhere and was exemplary every year. He should have gotten one Emmy after another for his fine work on that show. He was so talented back then. Then during the hiatus of that show, he would go and do a movie like Glory, like Cry Freedom. And boy, oh boy, he got to really shine and show his incredible talents then. As I said, great and St. Elsewhere, but somehow didn't get the recognition he deserved. But he sure got it in Glory and in Cry Freedom and dozens of other films he's done since, which he just always blows me away. He's one of the best actors I've ever worked with. I have tremendous respect for his talents and, and what he does in his personal life. He's given so many scholarships to young people, college scholarships and helped so many people and helped the community in so many ways. He's extraordinary what he does in a philanthropic sense. Him and Pauletta do so much. They're an incredible couple. What about his son? Have you seen John David Washington in anything? I don't think I have. Oh my God, he's in that wonderful movie, the black and white movie that his that he did with that wonderful actress. It's just a two-hander, the two of them in a house like the Malibu Hills or something. God, was he good in it. It was a very good movie. 
So, so good. John David Washington. I work with him on a movie and think the world of him. He clearly has great talent, which is both his parents are tremendously talented and he got it from both ends. He's incredible. You have a lot in common, son of a uh, very popular. Oh, that's right. That's right. Definitely. So you've done a lot of amazing stuff too. You're a very strong environmentalist. How did you get into going green? That happened in 1970, as far as me actually becoming an activist and really taking action as regards the environment. Prior to that, I knew there was a problem because I lived in smoggy LA for 20 years. So I knew what smog was and how it hurt your lungs and how it made it difficult to run or even just sit in a bench in the schoolyard, it hurt. And I knew there was water pollution because I went down the Santa Monica Bay and saw it after rain or any time there was horrible pollution. And I knew there was horrible pollution elsewhere. The Cuyahoga River caught fire in 1969. So by the time Earth Day came around in 1970, me in LA and many of other people around the country, around the world, thought I want to be part of something called Earth Day to revere the web of life that supports us all. You know, the earth and the ecosystem that we all need for fresh water and fresh food and all that we need. And so I became involved. And what I did is interesting to note, but what I didn't do is also interesting. That is to say, I didn't run out and buy things I couldn't afford. I wanted solar panels and a fancy electric car, but I couldn't afford anything like that. Solar panels were very expensive in 1970. But I started riding my bicycle, taking public transportation. I did both those things anyway before Earth Day, the first Earth Day, but I did them even more so after Earth Day. I started recycling, I started composting, I became a vegetarian. And I quickly realized that this green stuff was good for another kind of green besides the environment. That's green stuff called money, because I was saving a lot of money doing all of it. It was cheaper to use vinegar and water instead of a, a glass cleaner with ammonia. It was cheaper to use baking soda instead of harsh comet cleanser. And on and on, it was cheaper to ride a bike or take public transportation. It was even cheaper to get the electric car that I got. I bought an electric car for $950, very slow and didn't have long range, but it was cheaper than buying 1970 gasoline to fuel it with an outlet, a 110 volt outlet. And it was definitely cheaper to maintain because there's no tune-up or oil change or fan belt or radiator flush or smog check or valve job. You didn't have any of those things you have with a regular car. It was very cheap. So I went, I'm going to stay with this green stuff because it's good for my budget. And I stayed with it ever since. It's always made always made environmental sense for me. I got solar hot water panels in 1985. Finally, got solar electric in 1990. And I haven't looked back since. And now I live in a, a lead platinum home. That's the silver, gold, and platinum. And I was able to get platinum rating on this house that I'm talking to you from. Very good for the long term. And I'm I'm really in it for the long term. This is something a house my kids and grandkids will have. And it will last a long time. It's made out of steel. Instead of cutting down trees to make a home, we made it out of steel. And steel can last when it's enclosed like this and out, out, out in the rain and the open air. It can last for hundreds and hundreds of years. And this house surely will. So I'm very happy with all the green stuff I've done since 1970. That's incredible. How much, how much of the electricity and energy that comes into the house are you able to do through the technologies that they have right now? When I was just, when we first moved in, I was just one car, charging one car and running the house. My electric bill was $10 a month. Then stay with me as we walk through the other things we started to turn on. My wife wanted this pool activated. There was a pool here, but it was a weird geometric shape that you couldn't contain. I didn't want to have a pool. So we compromised and turned this weird geometric shape of a pool into a a rectangle that we could cover so you didn't lose a lot of water to evaporation. Also, it would keep the heat in so you could swim in it. You wouldn't freeze to death. So we covered it, what have you. But then to run a pool pump now, pretty soon, as we turn that on, we're using 20 bucks a month. And then she wanted ozone treatment instead of chlorine for the pool. So now it's like there's an ozone treatment thing. Now, now we're $30 a month. Then it wasn't warm enough, so we had to pump the water up to the roof. But there's no room for solar panels left in the roof because I have nine kilowatts of solar electric and I've got two big four by 10 solar hot water panels for the house. There's no room left for panels for the pool. So I put rubber tubing on the back, this company, Hot Sun, H2O Sun. Hot Sun put solar black tubing on the back, the flip side of the solar electric panels, and we heat the water with that. But now still that pump's running all the time. Then pretty soon my wife got an electric car. Pretty soon my daughter got an electric car. Pretty soon my grown daughter moved back to LA and she charges an electric car here. So now all that is by way of saying, I'm spending probably $150 a month on electricity, but I'm charging four cars and keeping a pool filtered and hot and all of that. So I'm very proud of that to be now I'm running a electric vehicle charging station here at my house for four vehicles. So, but the power that I buy that is beyond my nine kilowatts of solar 
is all LADWP, that stands for Department of Water and Power, LADWP Green Power. You pay three cents extra a kilowatt hour, and they give you power every bit as green as my solar panels. They buy new wind and solar out in the marketplace and feed it into their DWP grid. And so when I need to use extra power to charge my daughter's car or something, I have enough to to do that with power as green as my rooftop solar. So there's no coal and there's no natural gas really in my green power. It's, you know, it's not like they run a separate line to my house with just a, you know, a solar array from somewhere in the desert. But if you take 20s out of the bank in an ATM and you go put them back in later, you don't expect them to be the same 20s you take out and put in, but it's still a real cash transaction. There's nothing, there's no borrowing or line of credit involved to it. It's just, it's a real cash transaction. That's the way it is with LADWP green power program. If I pay extra for green power, they buy new green power at the marketplace, which means they build more wind turbines and put up more solar. This is incredible. I'm learning. I'm learning. So what could a guy like me who just recycled at the corner, you know, even puts it a bin and, and all that. What are, what are some like things people can do that are just earth smart, go green? What are some baby steps? You do the 2021 version of what I did in 1970. You do what you can, what you can afford. You don't run up to the top of Mount Everest. You get to base camp and you get acclimated and you climb as high as you can. You pick the low-hanging fruit first. You get some energy-saving light bulbs. If you like them, you know, buy some more. Put them in every, you know, in every outlet that you want. Get an, a water-saving faucet that's going to save, you know, the, the aerator kind of thing for your faucet. Put up weather stripping around your doors and windows. You get an energy-saving thermostat. You ride a bike if weather and fitness permit, take public transportation if it's available near you, home composting, home gardening, all those things are very inexpensive. So do what you can. There's many besides my list at my website, edbegley.com. There's many, any environmental group has a list of things you can do to save energy. Also, I make some cleaning products called Begley's Best that we sell at Amazon. You can just type in Begley's Cleaning at Amazon. We'll ship them to you. They're non-toxic, green and clean wonderful cleaning products and they clean every bit as good as harsh cleansers, but they're entirely non-toxic. That's incredible. How did you get into that business of creating these safe for the environment products? I wanted to do something that would like Newman's own. Paul Newman was a friend of mine and Nell Newman is, is a friend of mine. And so I wanted to do some very small version of what they do in a very big way, which is to raise money for charities that are dear to them by selling good products. So I met this guy at a vegan restaurant in Santa Monica. He had some cleaning products that he wanted to promote. So I wound up buying drums of the product from him, going to a bottler, taking those drums of product, bottling them and selling them in Whole Foods and Mrs. Gooch's and you know whatever other place was around back then, Sprouts. And I just had a whole bunch of places I sold it to. And I did that for years, shipping it out of my garage. But I became so busy as an actor I didn't have time to run it anymore. So a guy came to me called Mark Cunningham. He said, we'll handle all the shipping for you. You don't need to be shipping them out of your garage. We'll have the stuff bottled. We'll do it all. And we'll ha- we have new formulas for you, Ed, totally different than the formulas you've been working with now. We have them certified by EPA, Design for the Environment Certification. I did that, and it's doing very, very well. They're called Begley's Earth Responsible Products. Just type Begley Cleaning Products. And a Google search or at Amazon Begley Cleaning, you'll find them and they work really good. I'll put a link in the show notes. Click to that real easy. Thank you for that, buddy. Thank you. So what are, what are the negative effects of the products that I likely have in my house right now, like with the chemicals? Like, what is it doing to me? Is it slowly killing me over time? Here's you got, what you got to realize. The most vulnerable, your kids, little toddlers or what have you kids, babies crawling, they crawl around on the floor and they put their hands in their mouth and everything. Your pets lick their paws all the time, lick things off the floor. So if you're using a toxic cleaning product, they're going to get it in their system and given their body weight, it can really have a bad effect on their health. There's our dog right now putting in a, a little uh, out of guy. Very proud that I brought this up. See, I'm looking out for you. That's my daughter's dog, Ducky, right now, affirming what I'm telling you. Totally safe because he's licking bag living products exactly. off his paws. He's he has fine. a fruity flavor, so she's not harmed by it at all. So at any rate, it's for that. It's for certainly if you do what I'm encouraging people to do, which is to make your house more energy efficient, to seal it up with double pane windows and weather stripping, big thick walls and all. We're asking people to do that to make their home more energy efficient by sealing it up 
what if you've got it sealed up with all these toxic products inside of it? You don't want that. People are out there with me, with their placards protesting a hazardous waste site. The worst hazardous waste site is not near their home. It's in their home. It's under their sink, all these toxic products. Get them out of there. Use non-toxic products. Certainly the ones like Begley's Earth Responsible Products are clean very well. Do that and you'll have a non-toxic environment for yourself, for your pets, for your children. It's great that you are using your name and 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 all the, all your star power to create awareness around environmentalists going green, being safe in the home with all these products. Thank you, buddy. It's it's, it's very very cool. Burt Ward, who was Robin on Batman in the sixties. Interestingly enough, when I was talking to him, he's into dog rescue. He's saved over fifteen thousand dogs, and he created a dog food that helps dogs live like three times their normal lifespan. So it's like to you me, it's like. That. Check out my podcast in the Burt Ward episode. I will. Episode 50. It's fascinating. And that's why I'm excited about this episode too, because when people listen to my Burt Ward episode and they heard about the dogs and how you can help dogs live longer and all that kind of stuff, I have friends that have, they went and they bought the products, his dog food, and we bought it too. And we changed our dog's lifestyle. And there was all these things that I never even realized. That's why I was, I was excited to talk to you especially about this part of your life and your focus because the whole environment and everything. And because I think what people struggle with, what I struggle with, so I assume others, is where to start, what to do, what type of real impact am I going to have? Right. I think this is a good, good starter. It is a good starter. Do something simple, you know, take that first step, something that you can afford. And if it works well, which all this stuff does, I haven't found anybody that says that it doesn't work. You know, you do something else and something else and you do it at a pace that you can handle. And you do it right in the right order, you're going to save money at every turn and save the environment. I have one one last question. You seem to be blessed with, well, just in general, but also in your working life, to work with casts that are just unbelievable. Like we talked about all the Christopher Guest movies and all that, but the years you spent on Arrested Development, I mean, again, that's another, that's another cast that's just like so amazing. I mean, like- Will Arnett, you know, Jeffrey Tambor, it's just amazing. There's so Jessica Walter, rest her soul. You know, just amazing, amazing actors. Everybody's so good on it. I just, I'm very grateful to work with these people. I just pray that Mitch does another season. Yeah, it would be, it would be sad to see one without Jessica Walters. But, but yeah, they have just the chemistry of of all of you and your character. Did it, did you ever get any? Uh, letters about from people with alopecia i did not get any letters so hopefully they had a sense of humor about it i hope they found the the humor in it stan sitwell character that had alopecia we tried to be respectful but have a few laughs too but you would have got the letters by now for sure so i I probably would have there you go you nailed it you made everyone laugh with it so that's great that is so great i can't thank you enough this was so enjoyable and educational. I loved it. Thank you so much for spending this time with me. Thank you for having me on, buddy. If you want to spill any tea on John Iman, now's the time. I'll air it, whatever you say. No, John Iman is my pal for life. He's so great. I, I got to give him a call and thank him for bringing me up in his time on your wonderful show. He's a talented guy, a dear guy, and I've been friends with him since the 1960s. So I, I got to give him a ring. Thanks for reminding me. So yeah, give him a call. Tell him I said hi. Tell him Jeff said hi. And thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jeff. It was a wonderful time together. Thank you. Thank you. All right. How amazing was that? Ed Begley, ladies and gentlemen. Ah, that was so, so much great information. I was so excited to be able to talk to him about going green and ways that I can help the environment. I hope you all enjoyed that as well. Ed's dedicated his life, as we all heard. He's also written a couple of books that we didn't even talk about. Living Like Ed, A Guide to the Eco-Friendly Life, and Ed Begley Jr.'s Guide to Sustainable Living, Learning to Conserve Resources and Manage an Eco-Conscious Life, both available at Amazon.com. So check those out. I'll put links in the show notes to his product line and the books, so you don't even have to worry about it. Just go to jeffisfunny.com, go to the show notes. There they are. I do want to thank once again John Iman for hooking me up with some great questions to ask Ed. I do encourage you all to check out my episode with John Iman, episode 34. It's really great. We talked about Bird Ward real quick. He was episode 50 of the podcast. Check that out. Great information about his dog rescue and Batman, of course. Well, here we are. 
nearing the end of another episode. Episode 65 is coming to a close, so you know what that means. That's right, that means it's time to read some tweets from a trending hashtag from the family of hashtags at hashtag Roundup. You all know the drill from the social media tip today. You grab the hashtag Roundup app, you play along, and one day, all together now, One of your tweets may show up on a future episode of Live from Detroit, the Jeff Dwoskin Show. Today's hashtag comes to us from the Unlikely Game, a weekly game on Hashtag Roundup. The hashtag is hashtag unlikely ways to save the planet. We've talked about some really good ways, and now we're going to talk about some unlikely ways, some ways that may not be what you might expect. And that's what you get from a fun hashtag game. So here are some hashtag unlikely ways to save the planet. Print out enough CVS coupons to completely encircle the globe. That would keep it nice and cozy. Here's another. Unplug it and plug it back in. That usually solves most things. Make more ice cubes to help cool it down. I'm not sure ice cubes will help with global warming, but I mean, I'm not saying it won't help. So I'll give it a try. Save on paper towels by using big fluffy cats. Not sure that's going to go over well. Make cows stop farting. I guess we could shame the cows, get them to stop that way. Teach the planet self-defense. Not a bad idea. That way it can save itself. Put a mask on it. All right. Yeah. I mean, the planet needs protection too, right? Go back in time for a couple of whales. I mean, it worked for Star Trek Four. Thoughts and prayers. For some people, they think that's a good way to go. Eat all the plastic. Oh, that way it won't end up in the oceans. And our final hashtag unlikely ways to save the planet. Let the dolphins have a go at it. Oh, all right. Those are fun and unlikely ways that we can save the planet. Combine those with Ed Begley Jr.'s excellent ways to save the planet, and we might have a shot at saving this thing. Let's do it. Everyone, together, we can make this happen. The only thing we can't make happen is make this episode not be over. It is. I'm sad. I hope you're not too sad. But know that we'll be back next week. I do want to thank my guest again, Ed Begley Jr., for joining me. I also want to thank all of you for joining me week after week. It means the world to me, and I'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Jeff Dwoskin Show with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. Now go repeat everything you heard and sound like a genius. Catch us online at thejeffdwoskinshow.com or follow us on Twitter at Jeff Dwoskin Show. And we'll see you next time.